Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. This episode, we talk with Tim McElroy. Tim is a second generation farmer from Canada. We discuss his family's work, which led him to regenerative farming. This was a fascinating discussion about the history of agriculture and farming in North America and the involvement of the industrial agricultural complex that has increasingly affected farming in the U.S. We talk about the steps to starting a regenerative farm and the impact this will have on society. This was a fantastic discussion. I know you will enjoy it. And now a word about our sponsors. Jeter Melder LLP is more than a law firm. It is a legal team. Justin and Michael have over 30 years of experience working with different clients on different legal issues from both sides of the docket, including business disputes, constitutional rights, employment agreements, employment discrimination, local counsel, and pay issues. Jeter Melder have advocated in federal and state courts in Arkansas, California, Illinois, New Mexico, and Texas. With a unique blend of clients from doctors, fellow attorneys, tradesmen, hourly workers, the unemployed, to small businesses and Fortune 500 companies. They all have one thing in common. They believe in Jeter Melder and Jeter Melder believes in them. Give them a call at 214-699-4758 or visit them at JeterMelder.com. That's J-E-T-E-R-M-E-L-D-E-R.com. Have Jeter Melder work for you. Hey Tim, how are you? Thanks for thanks for joining me on the show today. Yeah, I'm great, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. You know, kind of uh, as we were talking before the show started, I know nothing about regenerative farming. I'm I'm interested in it. I've seen a lot of discussions on Twitter related to it, especially it seems within the Bitcoin community. So I'm I'm kind of excited to learn about this. And absolutely. Uh, before we dive into that, why don't we kind of find out, you know, who you are, where you grew up and and your kind of your background that got you into regenerative farming? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, it was really an accident getting into regenerative farming. And, you know, I grew up on a farm. Um, my dad's been a farmer his whole life and uh, still still farms, still ranches. Um, and he saw a lot of the practices that he was doing that were essentially unsustainable from a business perspective. Um wanting to stay off of government subsidies, wanting to have a self-sustaining business. He just started looking around at some of the options. And, you know, this is 30 years ago that he started doing this. And, and at that time, regenerative agriculture wasn't something well-defined. Um, it wasn't something more mainstream like it is today. And so he began looking at options. He began um, networking with people that were doing things differently, um, trying, trying new and innovative things, seeding marginal land, farmland back to grass, um, changing the direction of his of his row crops, incorporating cover crops. There's a lot of these things that, that are very common today um, that were just not not a thing 25 years ago. He was he was beginning to do. So I really just kind of grew up in this environment of just kind of this experimenting, um, trying trying new things, shortening his feedback loop so he could understand what was working and what wasn't. Um, until you know now, fast forward, I, I left the farm roughly 10 years ago. Um, attended college and, and now I work for a group of farmers um, doing regenerative farming. And, uh, and so just being able to, you know, take all that, uh, what I didn't know at the time was, was experience and insight and being able to apply it to what I'm doing today is great. Was your dad, was he successful in this new way of doing things? I mean, if he saw that the traditional way of farming was not a sustainable business, did he find ultimately that what he was doing was working? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I guess success from two perspectives. You know, he he was able to ma maintain his independence as a farmer, as a businessman, 
um, which she's still doing today. And then just a lot of success from a, a perspective of just feeling fulfilled with what he was doing because he could see the land improving. Uh, he could see healthy livestock on the land, um, comparing that to, to, you know, other farmers, other practices. Um, so it's very, just very fulfilling um, to be able to, to, you know, make the land better and know that you're leaving a heritage for your children. And what, what, uh, Kind of, kind of describe if if your father had not gone down that route, if he had gone down the traditional route, describe what that looks like to a North American farmer today. Yeah, so it's increasingly, you know, our farm was was what we would call a small family farm. It's um, seventy five hundred acres, but in that part of the world, um, that's a pretty normal family farm size. What's happening now, more and more is that large investment firms are coming in and, and buying up land. Land is one of the last stores of value in our fiat world. Big investment firms coming up and, and buying up this land, offering farmers great prices. Um, and then they turn around and they rent that land back to the farmers. Mm-hmm. And so the farmer turns from an independent operator into um, you know, basically a, a surf. That's kind of a... Um, that's probably the worst way to say it, but they're a tenant farmer, for, for lack of a better word. And... In that environment, then um, the the farmer is kind of downgraded from an independent landowner and cares less about the land, cares less about improving the land overall, um, and more just about making sure that the cash crop makes money every year um, so he can make his rent payments. So we we see a lot of that happening. Land is 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 um, diminishing in quality. It's getting worse, and farmers are becoming tenant farmers. Um, and so I think that's what my dad was really able to avoid, able to maintain ownership over his land and independence and, uh, and support, you know, support his family quite well on it. So I, I guess the, the desire or the draw to sell out, and I use that term not punitively or negatively, mm. but that's, that's what's happening uh, financially. I mean, I guess it's just too, too great of an opportunity to pass up. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's really what it comes down to. When we bought, my dad bought land in Saskatchewan um, 25 years ago, uh, he bought it at like 30,000 a quarter section, which is 160 acres, which is roughly $80 an acre. Um, very cheap. Um, what what guys are selling it for these days or in the last five years is closer to like 90 to 150,000 a quarter section. Oh so they're, okay. it's just absolutely, you know, maybe 25 years ago, it was a lot closer to the productive value of the land itself, um, that price. And now that's it's just not tied to the productivity of land at all. There's no way that someone could purchase that land, you know, a quarter section for $150,000 and expect to over the course of a you know 15 or 18 year mortgage on that expect to make any money back on that investment. Interesting. So the 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 big investment bankers they don't care about the output either. They care about it purely for the profit on the land itself. And yeah, and primarily as a store of value, really. And the only buyers that they're going to have are bigger investment banks behind them or investment groups. They're, right. They're, if they sell out or if they sell the land, it's not going to be to a farmer later on. It's to somebody bigger than they are. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. I mean, what is that What is that doing to, I guess, food supply, uh, food security, supply chain with um, our food supply in North America? I mean, is that how is that affecting that? I mean, it... it consolidates it to to some degree, right? As farmers, as farms themselves get larger um, and there's less independent operators in that, it, it does kind of pull the system more toward um, tight supply chains, um, you know, larger buying buying groups, larger buying amounts of, of product 
And so it, it, you know, it keeps it from, it keeps a lot of product from staying local within the system. And just an example of that would be, you'd see a lot of, you know, when I was growing up, you'd see a lot of more local economies happening where farmer would grow a product. Maybe it was not quite the right grade to, to meet a, a, you know, human food grade standard for wheat. It could go into animal food. And so a local feedlot would purchase that wheat from the farmer and, and it kind of just, it would, it would help some of those economies to stay local. Now, as, as farms get, you know, larger and larger, there's less and less of that um, helping within the local economy happening. And it's just, it's just, you know, going in great big grain piles that get blended and, and the quality is, is just basically um, evened out so that they can just sell it to, to the be- into the best market, which is never a local economy. Mm, interesting. That, and I guess that makes sense. And the, and the farm, farmers that do this, the, the landowners that do this, um, if it is a tight knit community, do they ever regret or, or what are their feelings in retrospect or for them, it's purely for self-security and family security? Yeah, it probably comes down to, you know, just the ever increasing pressure of, of our kind of fiat world on, on economics. Um, folks are just really glad to be able to finally see a payday. You know, mm. lots of farming is a pretty tight uh, margin business. And so when you get you know, if your family has owned land for generations, you probably don't own a mortgage on it anymore. And so when you see something like $150,000 a quarter section, that's the biggest money you've ever seen. So you're probably just going to be grateful for it, hold on to it and, uh, and move on. Mm-hmm. So, um, Tim, tell me, uh, let's talk a little bit about the agricultural industri- industrial complex, as you described it, or if I use the right term. And um, does that feed this? Is it a chicken versus egg? Or how, how does that fit into what's going on with, with farmland? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's definitely tied to it. So at the, you know, at the root of it all um, was this idea that we needed to basically get big or get out. And, and this was something that kind of came down in the early 70s. Um, a lot of pressure of, of farms to plow up marginal land that really should not have been in any kind of crop, crop production. And, and, and to, describe that. What, what do you mean marginal land? So Yeah, yeah. So it's marginal land. Where, where I grew up, it's all marginal lands. And, and, and what I mean by that is, is we get six inches of, of rain a year, um, very cold in the winter times, um, can be quite hot in the summer times. And so it's, it's not great crop producing land. If you think about, you know, great crop producing land, Illinois, Iowa, just, just deep, rich soil um, that's had a bank of organic matter uh, for a very long time compared to where we are, where it's like, you know, a couple inches of organic matter in the soil. Um, and, that, and that's from, I guess, in Calgary, Saskatchewan, your high desert, high plains, or what's the altitude? High plains, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that, that kind of environment is just not conducive to growing abundant crops. And that's the kind of land that in retrospect just shouldn't have been plowed up to begin with. Uh, and we can get into why, why that's the case and where regenerative farming is kind of reversing that cycle. Um, but essentially that, that push uh, in the 70s, and it was, it was happening to some degree before that, but that push in the 70s really brought online a lot of uh, marginal land. Um, and and it, it's basically a, a loop that feeds itself because as soon as you start farming marginal land, you have to put more synthetic and chemical inputs to produce a crop. Um, those synthetic and chemical inputs all come from the big egg companies, agricultural companies that are kind of within that complex. Um, and you, you also need a bunch of brand new machinery to plow the land, to, to, you know, take care of it, to 
to get everything seeded and harvested on time. And that's all kind of feeding that, that big engine of taking the economy away from the producer and, and adding in layers of basically these middlemen in the industry that can, that can siphon off um, the, the productive value that the farmer is producing. So what, I mean, <clears throat> so if you rewind pre 70, what would be done? What would a farmer do with that marginal land or, or what would have been a, a sustainable way or a proper way to use that marginal land? Yeah. So, and not all of these problems just grow the seventies because we've been plowing for, for hundreds sure. of years and sure. that's, that's been a problem, but a lot of that land that was just not suitable for, for crop production. Um, when, when say crop prices were not subsidized, um, it would have just stayed in pasture land and, and the thing about pasture land is at the very least, at least the ground is covered and the ground is always seeking to be covered. Basically. That's why you, you know, if you, if you have a garden plot in your backyard and you don't do anything with it, eventually just weeds are going to fill it all up. Ground is always seeking to be covered. Um, and so that marginal land just stays in grass and farmers would have either, you know, either just left it or they would have grazed at livestock on it. Um, and where all those livestock have, have eventually then been shifted into what we would call a lot of folks refer to as factory farming or just, you know, into feedlots um, to be fed byproducts of the cropland, which is ironic. So, yeah, you know, they're fed, sure. they're fed, they fed the byproduct of the land that was plowed up that they could no longer graze on. And now they're being put in a feedlot and fed that, you know, that byproduct. Yeah. <laughs> understood. Understood. Describe, this is fascinating. It's, it's kind of a new subject for me. Um, describe the effect that subsidies have had on the farmer. Are you still in Canada? Or are you, are you in the States now? Yeah, I'm in the States now. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and I'm sure the subsidy, subsidy, um, structures different from Canada to, to America, but how does that affect farming or how has that affected farming? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, just like, I'll just pinpoint one example of this. So we have a, a corn subsidy in the States, particularly to produce ethanol, right? Um, it's, it's not something that can be produced um, within the price range that makes sense. And so the government subsidizes it because we want to, I guess we want ethanol in our gas. Um, and so what that does is it basically incentivizes monoculture crops like corn um, to just be grown year over year on the same piece of land. Um, to, to kind of emphasize this, where a lot of corn is grown in Iowa, uh, for every one pound of corn that's produced, the farmers lose two pounds of topsoil. Mm. Um, and that topsoil is, you know, I'll get into this a little bit when we start into kind of a deep dive in regenerative agriculture, but that topsoil is where all the microbial life live that the plants feed on and use to, to be healthy, to be strong, to be resilient, and to you know, maintain themselves over the long term. So when we subsidize these crops, when we, when we basically fake the price on them, lie about the real value and price of these crops, um, we're creating just a negative feedback loop for the entire system where farmers are planting more of those crops, which are causing more degradation of the soil. Um, which eventually, you know, if we lose our topsoil, that's obviously going to be a big problem. We won't, we won't be able to feed ourselves at that point. I'm not as as pessimistic as to believe that we'll we'll get there, um, but it's it should be a genuine fear. Okay, so maybe I'd like to do this, uh, Tim. Let let's let's give you a scenario as a traditional far- well, maybe as a a current farmer and current meaning non regenerational. 
and you've got 500 acres of land, like a typical plot of land in America, mm-hmm. um, what would be the, without, you know, a long history of plowing or whatever, how, how much of that land percentage wise would be marginal land versus, you know, arable, you know, good yeah. crop. So, and I want to walk down the pathway of what you as a farmer would do with that land. So what, what would be the percentage breakup first of all, roughly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would just be completely dependent on, on geography. Sure, if you're in sure. a, you know, if you're in a river plain, you have 500 acres on a, on, you know, on the bottom river plain, it's all going to be amazing arable land. If you're um, say higher plains, say you're in Colorado, um, you've maybe got some, some of that, say 50% of that land down in the river bottom, and you've got a bunch of it up on the hillside or top tops of the hills. And that's going to be the marginal land there. Okay. So as a farmer, let's say that you're in Colorado, you got 50, 50 marginal sure. versus arable. Uh, with the current subsidy structure going on, uh, what 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 is your goal and and what do you plant? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's basically as as with any business, right? You want cash flow and you want um, to make good money at the end of the year. So you're going to plant whatever uh, the market will give you the most money for. So in the case when there are subsidies and subsidies work differently, some of them are like an insurance product. To where if you know the, basically the government will will guarantee a certain a, a certain amount of um, bushel production that they will pay for. So even if you don't meet that bushel production, they'll still pay you that amount. Um, but say in the case of corn, you know my, my objective in that scenario as just a conventional farmer would just be to plant as much corn as possible. So let's plow up those hillsides. Um, let's plow that the top of that hill, and even if it only produces half of the amount that the bottom or the the valley bottom will produce. Hey, better it's, than nothing. Yeah. it's better than nothing. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to just do that. And so what, what does that look like for you as a farmer year over year? Um, I mean, do you, I guess you, you play the same game every year. Yeah. And, until you can't anymore, which is where a lot of this marginal land has come to um, where y- your cost of inputs have now exceeded even, even good subsidies price because they okay. put in synthetic and chemical inputs to just to feed the plant because there's nothing left in the soil to do that. Okay. So when you say input, you're talking about synthetics that come into uh, what uh, these big ag- agricultural companies will sell you to Correct. make your, your crop more profitable. Correct. So if you're, if you're Joe farmer, Tim farmer, you go into your feed store or they've got a local rep from ADM or, or whoever there, Hey, you tell them, Hey, I've got this problem with my land. Will they do a soil analysis and say, Hey, this is what you need. Or do they just push out a, a, a quote unquote better product every year to give you more yield? Yeah. I, I mean, yes. And all, um, wow. they, they, you know, a lot of these companies will sell you the seed, um, will sell you the, the inputs, will tell you how much of the inputs to put on. Um, will tell you how much of the chemical to spray on to prevent this disease. And, you know, the disease that wouldn't have been there if you were doing rotations, if you were, if you were farming in a different way, all of these things that um, are kind of all, all in one. A lot of these places hire scientists, they have, you know, soil scientists on staff. And I don't think these people are poor intention necessarily. Yeah, of course. You know? yeah. Um, but it's just this, they have a business that they're running as well. And that is to sell the farmer as much input as they possibly can. Wow. Okay. As a regenerative farmer, take the same land. What, what, how would your strategy change? Yeah. Um, so regenerative farming is, is really all about looking at the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and you can kind of think about this in, in three layers and I can, I can describe kind of each of these layers to you, but it really starts at the, the soil level, um, right? You know, basically there's this complex biological um, 
uh, complex biological system going on underneath the the surface of the ground um, that is feeding the plants um, and is basically causing uh, a synergetic relationship to to, to carry on that allows the plants to thrive. Um, And so basically what you want to do as a regenerative farmer is um, feed the microorganisms in the soil um, because they are what is taking energy from the sun, the rain, from manure, and it's turning that into plant food. So as you can understand that relationship and minimize or completely get rid of tillage, you are going to be um, creating more healthy environment in the soil. And just one example of why, you know, tillage is so bad. Um, basically what it's doing is it's, is it's kind of digging into the soil and turning the soil over. And the idea is that you can eliminate weeds through it. Um, you can, they call it aerating the soil. Essentially what it does is it takes the, the anaerobic life that's say five inches or deeper in the soil and it pulls it to the surface. And then there is, you know, aerobic biological life that's within the four or five inches of the surface and it's burying that deep. And so it's basically um, just killing that life out. So just, healthy, so just for those who aren't familiar, and I know those terms because yeah. I'm a doctor, but anaerobic meaning there's no oxygen below a certain level of this soil. It was like six inches, five inches. Roughly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then the aerobic would be, you know, in that top, top, top soil. I mean, that's, that would be analogous to um, changing the microflora of the mouth. The mouth is a very ana- sure. anaerobic uh, bacteria in the mouth. And um, so I, I can see just from a physician's perspective, changing the bacterial content of a certain part of the body, uh, it makes sense. So from a soil content, that, that makes sense as well. Yeah. Um, okay, good. Yeah. So, and, and that's, that's interesting. Um, so, and essentially what, what tillage is then doing is um, it's just basically killing that entire ecosystem. But that's something we've been doing. We've been doing that for hundreds of years. I mean, that's been a farm practice for hundreds of years. Yeah, it has. Yeah. And in a lot of places, you know, we've been able to get away with it for a long time because there's been such a store of organic matter. Um, Mm. But if you think about this, you know, kind of similar to our banking system, actually, um, you know, the the clock is ticking on it where, you know, you've got the store of organic matter, say it's like a gold standard. And then you start lending out a little bit more than you have in reserves and you don't mm. think that people are going to call their notes. And eventually that, that you're off the gold standard completely. And that's kind of where we're getting to at this point in agriculture is, is the bill is coming due um, and it's just creating a lot of problems. So that that's very interesting. I, I again, I, I had never thought of it that way. Um, that's why you're here. What is, how will global warming? And I, I don't want to get into the, the political aspects of global warming, man-made or whatever, we know it's happening, but I mean, how, how will global warming affect that bill coming due uh, one way or the other? Is that, is, is that having much of an impact on that? Yeah. I, I mean, if anything, um, I, I would claim to claim to be more of a skeptic on these things, but if anything, it's helping, um, you know, as the earth is warming um, there's, it's actually, allowing plants to to grow better if there's more co2 in the atmosphere it's actually good for plants and so that'll actually help to cover the surface of the ground more if if that is in fact true so i don't really think there's uh, you know in my perspective or i haven't I haven't at least studied um correlations between those a lot of folks that would claim a lot of those connections um and i just think that's a little bit more a little bit on the skinny branches for, for what i want to you know what i want to talk about yeah, of course, of course, yeah. I, and I'm not a big believer in it either. But those who may be listening, maybe so. Right. So as a as a farmer, um, I, I guess you mentioned the financial incentive. 
And if you're that farmer in Colorado, yeah, it's purely payday for you to change from traditional farming to, you know, big tech, big ag farming. It's purely economics. Yeah, it, that's exactly how it is. And that's just, you know, they, they follow the money like any business. And, and it's a little bit just based on the, the fiat standard that we've created, you have to get close to the, the money printer to really um, make it work. And so subsidies are as pretty much as close to the money printers you can get. So we're going to chase those products and commodities that, that do that. Um, whereas regenerative agriculture is much more of that, you know, it takes a similar to what we would do in Bitcoin, a much more low time preference perspective, because you have to believe the work that you're doing is going to be benefiting the soil for generations to come. Um, and it's, it doesn't take very long in a regenerative system to actually see progress. You start to take care of the soil properly, um, use low to no disturbance uh, in, you know, meaning no tillage. Um, you start to, you know, cover the land with plants again, uh, making sure that the land is, is covered with plants as for many, as many months of the year as possible. Um, as well as incorporating livestock onto that land, incorporating the manure and, and having a proper grazing cadence so that the land can rest and recover, um, but as well as receive the manure that feeds the microbial life. Um, you start doing that and you see changes rather quickly. And so it can be a good feedback loop, um, but it's not necessarily from an economic perspective, you're not going to do as well regeneratively farming, especially for the first few years of the transition as you would if you were just sticking to planting corn year over year um, and getting the government subsidies for it. So Tim, what, looking back at your dad's experience and I guess your, your most recent experience, uh, if he's got his regenerative farming going on and you've got, you know, his neighbors farm next to him, I mean, is there, are his neighbors noticing that his techniques are working? <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny that, you mentioned that. I mean, because yes, it's, it's true. Those techniques work where my dad will have land. So again, because we're in, my dad is farms in a more of a marginal area. Um, one of the first things that goes in a conventional grazing system is a plant called alfalfa. Mm -hmm. And that's a legume, which is a nitrogen fixer, it pulls nitrogen out of the atmosphere and puts that nitrogen in the soil, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, but it's also a fairly fragile plant. And so if, if you continuously graze, which is a conventional farming practice where livestock are just left on the land on a, over a large area of land for a long period of time, they selectively graze the plants that they want and they just keep biting the regrowth on, on that new plant. So that plant dies out and it just leaves um, bunch grasses, which eventually the land just starts to go bare. And we can, we can see that where my dad will have just beautiful alfalfa stands um, and you know the, the neighbors across the fence their cattle are trying to break through the fence because there's there's nothing on the other side there for them to eat anymore. But farming is weird like that. And I, and, I, and maybe it's just with any, any um, industry that where there's just been generational patterns, mm. um, but farmers don't, don't change quickly. Understood. So. I mean, that, that's pretty much like most professions. Sure. You mentioned, you mentioned trying to shorten the feedback loop. So when you're trying to experiment, you, that, that would make sense to shorten the feedback loop, but how do you do that in farming? I mean, that seems, it seems like a year that you're going to, before you find out if something works or not, maybe multiple years. Yeah. Now, and that, that is the case for some things, um, but for, for certain things, it can be, can be fairly quick. Um, so going back to the idea of this grazing cadence, um, in, in a rotational grazing system, which is, you know, part of regenerative farming, you're basically using an electric fence to, to keep animals. Say you have a herd of 100 cows. 
and you want to keep them in as small area as possible for as short a time as possible. So it could be you could keep them on, say, a five acre plot for, I don't know, half a day and move them on from there. And what that does is it, it, it creates this environment where the animals are required to eat a certain amount of everything that's there. Um, they're required to evenly just kind of distribute their manure all over it. And then you just move them on and they get a, a fresh piece of grass within half a day. And what that does is it is allows you then to, to watch and observe, creating this, this quick feedback loop, watch and observe how that grass is recovering in that space. So it can be, if you're in a high rainfall area, that can be as, you know, as quick as three weeks that that plant is, is recovered and ready to be grazed again. Where we are, we, you know, we could go 90 days as far as a feedback loop goes um, when that plant is ready to be recovered, ready to be grazed again. So you can, you can use those kinds of, of systems as long as you're being observant, you use those systems to see, okay, is this, is this plant ready to be grazed again? Do I need to give it more rest? Um, and, and that's just, that's all part of learning how to work in the, within the whole ecosystem, learning how to ensure that the plants and the, and the soil is healthy. Um, before you go and try to use it again um, for economic benefit. And so describe the, I kind of want to talk about the the ideal regenerative farmer, who the quote unquote target audience is, but maybe describe a little bit about your current work. You mentioned that you work for a group of farmers and you do sales or, I mean, what 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 does that look like and, and why do they need a, a role like you to do what you're doing? Yeah. So what essentially what we're doing is we're, we're trying to, value add on the work that these farmers are doing. And we're just, we're just operating within basically a, a fiat world with this. So what we're trying to do is, is tell the story of what they're doing to the land, both to provide basically an education for folks that have no idea uh, of what any kind of new or regenerative farming practice looks like. Um, but also, you know, a lot of folks will actually pay a little bit more these days for a product that comes off the land if they know that it's, it's providing the land some kind of benefit. Um, and so that's essentially the work that, that we're doing. Farmers are very busy with, with production. Um, it, it's, you know, it's pretty all consuming as far as making sure that the land is, is doing well and they, you know, they're taking care of their day-to-day operations. And so, um, to add the sales and marketing component of their products is pretty, is, is, can be difficult. And so that's part of what we're doing is, is helping to tell that story and ensure that they get basically a premium for their products that keep them off government subsidies um, so that they can keep doing what they're doing and, and improving the land. Um, as far as like a, you know, a target audience, I think that what we're seeing, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later, but in the Bitcoin space, some of the, some of the, the best uh, things come from folks that are not in the industry. So folks that just, they, they want to farm or say they want a homestead or things like this, that they come in with just completely fresh perspective and they're, they're not tied down to the ideas of the ways of doing things. And so they're open to learn and they're open to watch and observe. And those are, those are the folks that I think um, I guess I see the most potential in um, as the farming population has dwindled, you know, to, I think what there's less than, there's less than 2% of the population, the U S population farming anymore. Um, there's so much opportunity for growth in the agricultural space from new people coming in and just adopting ideas that work and either leasing land or, um, you know, doing what untapped growth is doing and, uh, and finding investors who are willing to, um, you know, invest in land and allow regenerative farming practices to take off so much opportunity here. Interesting. So 
getting back to the group that you work with, you, you're basically working with regenerative farmers, but you're trying to find a market for them to sell their products at a premium, like farm to table restaurants or niche uh, grocery stores where they could sell their produce or cattle. Yes. Um, okay. Very good. Okay. Uh, so Tim, walk us through the, like if you right now were given kind of an educational seminar uh, to a Bitcoin audience and I, I, I'd like to hear like who would be the ideal regenerative farmer and walk us through the stages of the regenerative farming process that you mentioned. And then maybe before you do that, kind of give us a, a brief history of, you know, how you got into Bitcoin and what, or what attracted you to it. I think you mentioned a little bit about your, your interest in economics. That was kind of a short fuse for you to understand Bitcoin, but kind of walk us through that whole process for you. Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my interest for quite a long time, basically since, since I left the family farm, um, has been to help people get back to that kind of lifestyle and, and want people to be involved in that. Um, and obviously there's just a big problem with that is land is so expensive and land is, is the one resource that you, you need to do this on. And so, you know, I, I, I just within, I just had the, the normal, you know, fiat mentality here. I, I can't find investors who are interested in um, investing in land and that they're not going to see an immediate ROI on or, you know, month over month cash flow. Um, so ironically, my, my introduction to all of this to Bitcoin came through um, Untapped Girl. His name is Joel on John Vallis podcast and talking about the work that he's doing um, around finding low time preference investors who are willing to invest in the land. And what, what, you know, Untapped Growth and his team is doing is um, just allowing people to get into the land with a completely different mentality. And so, my my curiosity there was was immediately um, I was intrigued immediately just because of the idea that well they're doing this with this thing called Bitcoin, and I have no idea what this is. And in my perspective, Bitcoin is just another one of these hundreds of of cryptos out there. Uh, I say that with you know air quotes. Um, and it's just just kind of a financial tool that people are playing with, um, and I just didn't realize the implications at the time. And as I've you know obviously gone down the the rabbit hole on it, um, just seeing the value of having a low time preference incentive, right? All of a sudden, we are we're changing from this mentality of trying to get close to the money printer or close to the government stimulus, and we're actually looking at ways to. Um, you know, invest ourselves in the future, invest ourselves in our future generations. Um, and I guess this, the, and the second piece to this that, that really struck me, and I see this application to regenerative agriculture, is uh, an incentive to productivity in, over, again, getting close to the money printer, right? Because as soon as, uh, you know, we, we, if we want to increase our store value or want to provide more for our family, now we actually have to just get good at what we're doing and produce more if we're say we're on a Bitcoin standard. Um, and that ensures that, you know, we can do this in the long term and, and we have to maintain a reputation of being good at what we do. And instead of, again, chasing government stimulus, chasing in agriculture, carbon credits or crop insurance subsidies or things like that, um, we get good at what we're doing with, with just producing well. And when we can focus on productivity, uh, what that what what I believe is that really does bring us closer to, you know, our calling before God, which is just be faithful with what we're doing, um, with the calling that we've been given, and do that really well. 
And, and Bitcoin is, is a way to, to allow us to do that you know, much more easily. It's a tool by which we can fulfill our calling in a, a more productive capacity. And so we mentioned, we talked a little bit about stewardship uh, kind of in the Christian framework. I mean, how do you think that this uh, falls within that, that, that calling? And obviously not only Christians are going to be involved in, in regenerative uh, uh, farming, but uh, just kind of describe that whole process of stewardship. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it, it goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, right? We, you know, our, our, Adam and Eve, our, our first uh, parents, as it were, were, were placed in the garden and their calling was to, you know, subdue, take care of the garden and multiply upon the earth, right? And turn, and turn wilderness into a place to live and into a garden, essentially. And we call this the dominion mandate called to, to steward and care for the earth. Um, and obviously, you know, we can't, we can't talk about creation without talking about the fall and, you know, where, where our first Adam desired knowledge of evil. He disobeyed God and, and through eating the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And through that, that disobedience brought a curse upon the whole world, right? Um, by the sweat of our brow, we toil. Our work is made more difficult. Um, the land produces more weeds, essentially. These things that are brought about by the disobedience of the curse um, are, are still upon us today. By the nature of covenant relationship with God um, and his people, you know, we fall in Adam. So, our hearts are evil. We desire evil. Um, because because Adam did, and the whole earth, you know, groans under the weight of, of the curse of that disobedience. Um, but thankfully, similarly, by the nature of God's covenant, you know, Christ is the second Adam. Christ did what Adam could not do, and um, redeemed has, has the opportunity to redeem people's hearts. Um, and Christ is redeeming the world, you know, the fallen world to Himself, and He's He's using His people uh, to do that, right? As He redeems the world. He transforms our, our hearts. Um, he, he is transforming and redeeming the curse that is over creation. Um, and I, I bring all that up to say, okay, so as we, as we live in this world now where I believe Christ reigns and um, it, our job, first of all, is to you know, acknowledge our disobedience to God, repent of it, and, and confess the Lordship of Christ over the world. But in addition to that, it's to look back to what is, what is our original calling, right? Before, before Adam and Eve fell, what was our calling? Well, it was to, it was to subdue the earth and to steward the earth. Um, and, and so regenerative agriculture is really a tangible and practical way of stewarding the earth. It, it acknowledges the complexity of creation. It even, you know, relishes in that complexity. Um, it understands that everything in this world works together in a symbiotic relationship that, you know, sustain life. And uh, it, it increases the long-term productivity of the land. Um, so to me, it really does fit in with, with this idea that as we get back to our calling, as we understand our place in the narrative uh, of creation, of fall and redemption, um, caring for the earth and learning how to increase its productivity uh, and be a blessing to the earth is a huge part of, of that calling. That was great. I mean, that's, that, was a great, that was a great gospel message too. Thank you. Um, that was fantastic. Kim, so uh, talk about... Um, you know, if, if I'm interested, let's say I'm a newbie. Okay. Obviously, um, I've got some land and I'm interested in doing farming, regenerative farming, kind of talk, take, take us through the steps of what that looks like, maybe even to the point of, you know, site identification, you know, what makes a good plot of land, just kind of paint that whole picture for us. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank, thankfully, um, with regenerative farming, you can really just do this where you're at. And I, I truly do believe that, and this is, this is tied to, you know, my, my gospel hope um, and, and my belief in, you know, the fact that Christ is redeeming the world to himself. But I, I believe that places like the Sahara Desert or the Gobi Desert will be covered with grass. Oh, wow. uh, it might, it might not be in our lifetime. It, it'll, you know, it might be a millennia for now, but, but those are the kinds of things that, you know, redeeming part of redeeming the world and reversing the curse on creation is. Um, and so I say that to mention that really regenerative farming works anywhere. In so, a, in a, so use that as an example. Let's, let's say you're, you know, in the Gobi desert, I mean, and how many acres would you start with? And I'm sure you can't do it in isolation. You've got to have a lot of right. this going on, but I mean, what, what would that look like? Yeah, you start very small and you would not expect anything for, you know, 10 to 15 years, right? Wow. You, you, that kind of thing. Working in an in a arid environment like that would just require a lot of uh, faithfulness every day, getting up and, and doing what, what you know will work, um, expecting a, a long-term benefit. You can, you know, obviously the same kind of things, the same principles apply, whether it's a rainforest or whether it's a desert, it's these ideas of, um, you know, minding the complexity, biological complexity in the soil, ensuring and trying to get as much of the, the land and the, the soil covered as possible and using and integrating livestock in that grazing cadence to, to regenerate the land. Kind of if you stick to those three core principles, it will work anywhere. Um, it will just work much quicker in, say, uh, a place like Georgia than it will in a place like Arizona, for example, just kind of using going from a southern um, humid, warm climate to, to a high desert climate. It will work in both of those places. It's probably just going to take 15 years to, to see significant benefit on the land in a place like Arizona. So you're, you know, if you're looking at that as, as a regenerative farmer, you want to come in, you're going to need a lot less land in a place like Georgia, and you're going to need quite a bit more land in a place like Arizona. Um, okay, so so walk me through. I, I I live in Georgia, outside of Atlanta. So, oh, nice. you know, t- t- walk me through. Like, this is the ideal plot of land size, and how, this is how much it's going to cost, excluding land because the land will vary. But you know, roughly estimate how much it's going to cost for cattle feed and all that. Kind of kind of paint that picture for us. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I I have not. I don't know the exact acreage you would need down there. I I know probably like the roughly the size of, of herd that you'd want. You'd probably want something around 30 to 50 head, uh, which is, which is just a number of cattle um, that you'd, that you'd want to be able to start with. And so you might, these numbers might be way off, but you might be able to do that on um, about a hundred acres where, where you are. And that would allow you to not have to bring in extra inputs. Even, even something like extra hay would, would be an input. Um, if you want to just do it self-sustaining right there, probably do about hundred acres for, for 50 head is, is my guess in a place like Georgia. Um, and what you would want to do is you would just want to start um, making sure that you had water infrastructure on the land that could be um, just running pipelines of water so that you can move water around with the cattle. Um, you would get yourself a, a fence charger and um, spools of electric fencing that just, which is one single wire of electric fencing and some fence posts. And you just start um, basically moving the cattle around and, and a place like Georgia is going to be very forgiving on, uh, on the learning curve um, because, you know, a warm climate with a lot of rain, um, things are going to recover quickly. Um, it's going to be very forgiving as far as plants aren't going to die out very quickly in that kind of environment. So it, it, it'd be great. Those kind of environments are perfect for the learning curve because you just start to observe and see, okay, this plant has 
um, has recovered enough, meaning that it's it's grown enough and uh, and the root structure is in place again. I, now I can come back and regraze this area. Okay, so uh, I, I presume that we're talking about a hundred acres. That at some point, once we get through this process, we're going to have crops on there to feed a family. I mean, what is the is the process just to regenerate the land and grow cattle, uh, raise cattle, or are you going to actually? Uh, raise crops that you can feed a certain number of people and how many people would that feed, et cetera? Yeah. You know, I don't know the, you know, I don't know bushels per acre yield in a place like, like Georgia. So I, I can't speak to how much that would, um, how much that would feed. You can easily incorporate crop crops into all of this. Um, and, the, and the way to do that would just be to, um, so a, a lot of folks are having success in incorporating say like a, a garbanzo bean together with, with a wheat plant. Um, we're using these, these conventional farming products, like say wheat and garbanzo beans, but, but a garbanzo bean is a legume. And so it's um, pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere and putting it in the soil. So it works and very much complements the nitrogen needs of the wheat. Um, uh, so you can grow these kind of things together um, and be able to harvest them a little bit differently at different times. Um, but use these still the same regenerative principles of keeping the land covered with a diversity of plants. Um, and then once you harvest that, your, your goal then would be to go in with what we call cover crop, which is basically a, a mixture of all kinds of different plants to create a lot of biodiversity. You'd let that grow up and then you'd actually go in there and you'd, you'd graze it. Lots of these cover crops are excellent, um, actually excellent tools for finishing cattle on. Um, just they, they provide higher protein uh, amounts for cattle than some grasses do that you can get some marbling in the meat and finish a grass fed beef really well on some of these cover crops. So what that does is it keeps the land um, with keeps those symbiotic relationships intact between plants and the biological life in the soil for as long for as many months of the year as possible. And so talking through this model and, and just thinking about that, I, I presume that for big, big ag, the goal is to feed as many people as they can because we have a growing population. Getting back to regenerative farming, it seems like you're kind of going against that model. So how can, do you, do you think it's possible to sustain a growing population on earth if we reverted back to regenerative population or uh, regenerative farming? Or do you think that big ag is always going to have to be involved in feeding the population that we have? Yeah, I think if we, you know, quit cold turkey today, that would be a problem. Um, our whole world is, and the whole systems are built upon this model of, of huge grain exports, of cheap grain. And so everything that we do, you know, the way that we feed the world is built on that. Um, people often have this idea that regenerative farming just means that, you know, we're, we're decreasing the amount of produce, we're decreasing the amount of everything. But if, if we actually could convert the, the amount of land that we conventionally farm today to a lot more decentralized farms where people are over overseeing and managing those plots of land, you get a lot more careful management. Um, you get a lot more increased productivity, right? Because a regenerative farmer still has to, has to pay the bills at the end of the day. Um, and the great thing about as you regenerate land, as you actually not only maintain the health of the soil, but you increase the health of the soil, your carrying capacity goes up, which is basically just a way of saying you can put more livestock on the land. You can run more animals, you could plant more, you know, get, get better yield on your crops, everything like that. It really seems like 
the lesson of decentralization with Bitcoin applies to so many things that we're trying to recapture, uh, you know, with this and um, even Christianity at its fundamental core, the, the more decentralized it is, the more pure it is. And, and we've we've gone through centuries of centralization within our Christian experience. And it, it mm-hmm. seems like if there's a lesson that Bitcoin could teach us is, is that there's truth in decentralization. It sounds like that's, that's the same here for regenerative farming. That that's fascinating. Um, So, you know, kind of looking out the next five to 10 years, I mean, where do you want to see regenerative farming? I mean, what, what's your goal, what's your mission uh, to accomplish within, you know, this, this new field or maybe not new, but budding uh, resurgence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, with all that's going on politically, I think the next 10 years are kind of crucial for, helping with that decentralization, um, getting more people out of cities, getting them on land. Like I mentioned before, some of these folks coming in without, with zero experience, they should really take heart because these are principles that you can learn. Um, these are, these are intuitive things. You, you know, if you have eyes and ears and you're willing to, willing to learn, uh, these things are, are, you can set up these systems and uh, really begin to see a difference in the land that you're working on right away. So my, my vision, my hope would, would be to just continue talking about it, continue being a, a blessing and a resource to the farmers that I work with to, to help them um, stay off the of government subsidies and feed their families well, but also to um, grow the, the basically grow the network of people who are able to do this and able to feed their families, feed their communities well off the land that that is around them. Okay, so let let's say that I live in New York City. And, um, you know, I'm a young person, a millennial, and I'm intrigued by this. Maybe I'm newly married or thinking about getting married. You know, what would be an action plan? What could I do today to kind of go down this journey? I live in a small apartment in Manhattan. So, but I, I kind of intrigued by this. So what would be my first step? Yeah, I, I think two, two things. Um, untapped growth in the Bitcoin space is, is doing awesome things with, um, getting people in the door and getting land for people and getting cattle for people. That would be one. Okay. So I'm, I I, I'm familiar with what they're doing, but I'm not familiar with the details. So are they allowing no um, new, uh, new landowners to purchase or lease land or are they uh, providing the investors, the opportunity to purchase land? I mean, so in that situation, if I, have never owned land before, I could approach untapped growth and say, hey, I'm interested in buying or leasing a, pro- a, a piece of property. Yeah, I should be careful not to be a spokesperson for them. But um, that, that, as I understand it, that's what, that's what he is working to, to allow these folks to be able to do is, is come in, have the land in place with, an, with a low time preference investor who isn't looking to you know, get a, a month on month return on, on the investment and uh, get folks on the land, regenerating it for the long term. Um, that would be one resource. The second resource, I would point people toward Greg Judy. Um, he's this kind of eccentric farmer out of Missouri. He has a YouTube channel. He has plenty of books. And what his model is fascinating in that he just approaches landowners that are either not doing anything with their land or say it was land that grandpa farmed and, and, and the grandkids now live in the city, but they still own it. Um, and he actually gets, sometimes he gets um, no payment term leases on this land because he, is pro- he has a proven system that he's caring for this land. So he's out there just leasing farms. Um, and so he doesn't have any of the overhead capital of having to own the land. He, he has you know, 10 year leases on this property. He's regenerating it for the long term. 
um, and and making a good living doing it. So, that, and he has several good books and a YouTube channel full of full of good information that people can kind of just familiarize themselves with with these ideas and systems about getting being creative about getting into regenerative farming. That's fantastic. I was going to ask you about resources, but I, it sounds like that's that's a pretty good resource. Yeah. Um, and as you, as you think about where you want to be personally in the next five to 10 years, I mean, do you see yourself continue to work with the group of farmers that you're working in, or do you plan on uh, purchasing land yourself that you're going to farm? Or, I mean, what's, what's the vision for you personally? Yeah. The vision is, you know, I've got two, two little kids. My wife and I have two little kiddos and, and I want them raised in the same environment that I had the privilege of being raised in. So that's our, our personal objective is to, is to get back on land. Um, you know, we left the farm or I left the farm, um, before I was married. Uh, and it, it's just, we decided to, we wanted to be a little bit closer to, um, kind of civilization as it were, it's where I grew up is out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and so we wanted to be here and, and that, um, so our personal goals would be to be able to be on the land and, and, um, and be regeneratively farming that way. But also just, you know, my vision is to continue to, to help and support people getting into this and, and doing this. Um, probably at a, a larger scale than what I am right now, um, but just being able to build up um, systems and processes that that we can move people effectively and quickly into new systems of of farming. That's fantastic, Tim. As we wrap up, I mean, are, what are some good ways for people to connect with you? And if I've forgotten to ask you a question, you think is really important for people to understand, please, please uh, close us out with that. But uh, yeah, let us know where people can get a hold of you. Yeah. Um, probably the best, the best way is just on Twitter. I think my Twitter handle is, uh, at T M C E L, um, at T M C E L. And, uh, yes. I should probably, me- it, probably memorize it, that. <laughs> it is. I'm looking at it. Yes. Okay. That's great. And I'll put that yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, this is great, Patrick. I think, you know, if I had a, a final thought for people, it would just be, um, you know, realize that, that human beings are, are, such an exceptional resource. Our creativity is that one aspect of our nature that so closely resembles, you know, the image of God in us, our ability to, to create and to um, basically look at creation and say, this is good. This is fallen. There's a curse upon it. Let's be a blessing to where we are. Let's use, for example, in the, in the, you know, Bitcoin space, let's use the wealth of Bitcoin. This is a blessing from God. Let's use it to um, enhance the world around us, whether that's through missions or, uh, whether that's, you know, for me, for my work and my calling isn't specifically missions. It's, you know, I believe it's in regenerative agriculture. And so I can be a blessing to those around me, a blessing to to the world um, through dedicating my productivity and my effort um, to to using the wealth that God has given me to enhance what's around me. That's fantastic. So, Tim, thanks so much for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. Patrick, thanks a lot for having me. This was great. A pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace.